This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right. Welcome back to Energy Sense, an IHS market podcast that considers topics that lie on the intersection of energy and financial markets. I'm Hill Baden here, as usual, with Brian Doherty. Brian, how are you? I'm great, Hill. How are you? I am doing well. We are recording today on the 3rd of December, so we just got back from Thanksgiving. How were your holidays? Um, you know, they were, yeah. They're good, I guess. It, it's everything's just a, a little bit anticlimactic right now because, at best, you know, you're you're eating dinner with one other person as opposed to, you know, I, maybe in some cases, I guess that means around the Thanksgiving table, there were there were less fights because there were just less people. Is, is that maybe the the bonus yeah. of all of this that families haven't been falling out in 2020 because they haven't seen each other? This might be the, <laughs> the silver that? lining. Um, Did but you have a big bird? Well, no, not really. Well, I mean, here's what's funny, right? It was American Thanksgiving, but I'm Canadian. So to be honest, I don't really care. Like, I'm an adopted American Thanksgiving person. I'm like, it's, yeah, it's whatever. For me, it's just nice because it's an extended long weekend. <laughs> so, <laughs> so not that I don't care. I mean, it's important for everybody and it's always nice to have a holiday. But um, my my true roots was cel- were celebrated back in October because that's when Canada has their Thanksgiving. But yeah, no, I had you know turkey and the whole trimmings. Oh, hold on a second. I well, I speaking of me being Canadian, I am going to bring this up. So, um, we've talked about how we're pretty impressed that our listening listenership is, I guess, how you call it. Our listenership has has, seems to have increased over the last month or two, which yeah, we're taking as a very good sign that we're not horrible and maybe people are finding either important information or just enjoy speaking or hearing us speak. So that either way is a win. Um, but so I had, I had somebody that has known me for a long time, but I hadn't spoken to in a while, um, reach out and say, Oh, you know, I listened to your podcast. That's great. And I said, Oh, great. He said a couple things. One, um, you're really living up to the Canadian stereotypes because you seem to talk about weather a lot. <laughs> and two, <laughs> Uh, your accent sounds more pronounced and he's not sure whether or not it's because I'm like holed up in my home all day by myself um, and maybe talking more to my family on phone or if it just comes across more Canadian when it's recorded. But these have been the comments I have been hearing from people that know me is that I I sound particularly Canadian and um, I talk about the weather too often. Well, maybe that's a a good segue to bring in Tony Reich, who is a particular (laughs) Canadian. Uh, who is joining us today. Tony, how is the weather wherever you are? <laughs> hey, Hill. Hi, Brian. I don't detect any accent whatsoever. I don't, I'm not sure what you're talking about. But. It's all, Hill's got the accent. It's not me. Right. And I'm on the west coast of Canada, and of course, it's drizzly. So yeah, I was going to say, it's probably gray. <laughs> it's probably the first thing I was going to say is, is it gray out there on Vancouver yeah. Island? Because that's typically the case. And did, were you able to take time over Thanksgiving? Did you celebrate Thanksgiving being in Canada in November? Yeah, about, a, about a month ago. About a month ago. Okay. <laughs> so, so what is? What, what do Canadians do on the day after Thanksgiving? Do, do you participate in all of these American induced sales, or, or out of spite, do you go curling or something? Well, 
and point of fact, I went curling, but that just <laughs> did you actually go curling? <laughs> Absolutely. Friday. Yeah. Wonderful. Actually, they're they're on the verge, I think, of shutting us down. I, I think. Oh, no. The yeah. COVID beast is going to close up our uh, our curling rinks for a few weeks, but we've been trying our best. Anyway. I got in a last a last game at least. That's good. Well, so 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 Tony is a senior advisor of worldwide plays and basins analysis here at IHS, and um, one of the other things I guess that happened over the Thanksgiving break, at least in the news cycle, is Exxon uh, announced that that it was uh, concentrating a lot of its development on uh, three kind of core upstream opportunities in. Kiana, Brazil, and the Permian Basin in the U.S., which is really what I think we wanted to talk about more broadly today, but but around basin consolidation and, to an extent, operator consolidation. So I guess first, Tony, on the back of that news, I mean, can, can you help us to interpret the, interpret the significance both to Exxon and to the larger upstream arena? Sure. I think, that, I mean, ExxonMobil's announcement, I, I guess it it raises some eyebrows in terms of its severity. I mean, this is a, uh, an enormous international oil player um, in a lot of basins in a lot of countries to be narrowing their focus down to three, both speaks to the, obviously, the, uh, the size of the resource in those basins, but really the, the uh, amount of traction that basin focus is getting in oil and gas portfolios worldwide. And we've, I mean, we've seen this trend for quite a while. You know, people like to focus on exploration. That's sort of the front end of this whole process. And, and if you look back, you know, kind of the pre-2010 period, you know, you're having 1,400, 1,600 Newfield Wildcat wells drilled on a global basis. Uh, since 2015, that number is more like 600, 650. But as important, the sh- the drift of that exploration activity into mature basins, so where you have established infrastructure and you have established uh, upstream operations is actually accelerating. So less exploration, more of it focused on the mature basins. And the result is you're leaving more and more, let's say frontier or emerging stage basins uh, starved for capital. This is gonna have some really significant implications on on a worldwide basis as we move through the next number of years. And again, it's not just ExxonMobil doing this. It's, um, you know, you, you, you would be hard pressed to find an oil and gas company at this point that isn't seriously considering basin and portfolio consolidation to try and enhance their uh, cost effectiveness, to try and get to some point of scale economies where you can compete effectively in a lower oil price world. You know, it's, that's, the, that's the path forward. So which basins seem like the natural winners in this or, or where we're going to see that narrowing of focus? So, some well, must be better positioned than others. Sure. And, and you know, that changes a bit. I mean, the uh, Guiana is a great example. It's, it's a classic. Uh, you know, the first successful deep water well was drilled there in 2015, five years ago. And no infrastructure anywhere. I mean, it's it's a, a true frontier basin. ExxonMobil drilled like Elisa One, and they brought production on stream in 2019. So less than five years it took. And now you have uh, this basin that's moving north, you know, moving towards 11, 12 billion barrels of recoverable resource it really came out of nowhere. So, you, you, I mean, you'll continue to have those stories, but 
who are going to be the winners through this consolidation are the are the basins that sort of have continued to prove their ability to uh, deliver up either new plays or or more resource out of existing plays over a long period of time. You know, if, if you if you kind of look back to and ask yourself, so how does an oil and gas company make money? I mean, the the holy grail in our business is being in a in a basin that gives you repeatable economically viable opportunities for resource discovery and development. So where are those? Well, I was looking today at our, uh, we, we monitor, so the 10 top exploration successes in uh, each year as we kind of roll through the year. So the December numbers are in now for 2020. Of the 10 top discoveries in terms of resource size worldwide, uh, seven have been in either Guyana, or the Alaska North Slope, which people go Alaska North Slope. I mean, the, the I think people's tendencies to think, well, that's a basin that everyone's kind of forgotten about. It's been pretty sleepy for a while, but um, you know, there was a classic case where the the above ground changed, the competitor landscape changed to allow different players to come in and, and rework this basin with new ideas or maybe a little more focus than it otherwise been the case. Uh, but, you know, other major winners here, uh, U.S. Deepwater, Gulf of Mexico, absolutely, and soon we think to be joined by the Mexico side of that basin. You know, basins don't, <laughs> basins don't care about national borders. So uh, there's just been a, because of, again, above ground challenges, there's just hasn't been the activity level on the Mexico side that we're now seeing now that their upstream is open to foreign engagement and, and involvement by the big IOCs and the internationalizing national oil companies. So yeah, that North Sea continues to produce surprises, although perhaps maybe now finally for a, a smaller set of companies, a tier two set of companies who will take that large basin area forward, you know, while Statoil or, or sorry, Equinor now continues to kind of grow out the, uh, the Norwegian North Slope, uh, North Sea component. And then you have the, you know, the Middle East basins, to the extent you can engage in them, are continuing to be fruitful. West Siberia. The problem is many of the basins that we think will, will really come to dominate oil production over the, you know, the, if you look out 15 to 20 years, are really basins that are under the purview and, and operation of national oil companies. So, you know, the access of IOCs, you know, international oil companies, E&P companies as we know them, to these basins and to this resource uh, is going to be fettered. We don't, you know, there may be, uh, in some cases, there may be a, a national oil company, like in, in case of Adnoc and United Arab Emirates, that relies heavily on foreign companies to come in and develop their resource wealth. Saudi Arabia does not. Russia doesn't really. So it's just going to depend on the, on the, the jurisdiction as to what kind of role these basins are going to have in the portfolios of companies like ExxonMobil or Shell or Chevron. Well, and uh, I guess kind of piggybacking on that, the Exxon chose to focus on three basins that are oily, and a lot of the basins on your list were, were oily. There are some huge exploration successes, you know, in MSGBC, uh, Mozambique, and the Eastern Med that, that are gassy. Do, do we expect to, to, to see more focus on oil at the expense of gas, or, or is it there 
is there a strategy or people going to do oil or gas rather than oil and gas i guess maybe mm -hmm. the, the way to ask it sure i think the the i mean even at 45 dollars or 50 dollars a barrel the oil is a is a wealth a greater wealth generation and certainly it's much more fungible so you can produce it put a you know floating production storage and offloading facility at your if you're in the offshore at your uh, at your field site uh, load up tankers and ship them off. Uh, if you make a major gas discovery, MSGBC is a great example. Hill, you know they have a very large now proven gas resource base. Uh, so the the future of the MSGBC is 100% about commercialization. So who's going to build the LNG facilities and how are they going to tuck into a global LNG market that already is looking a little bit oversupplied? And as you say, has a lot of large-scale gas resource waiting to be developed and to get into that market. And there will continue to be companies who are oil specialists and companies who are gas specialists. Certainly, that's, uh, uh, that's going to be the case. But the large-scale global natural gas sector is a, a harder game to play because those commercialization options are so expensive, the amount of capital that you need to put into fixed LNG trains and all of the shipping and all bits to move that gas around. Uh, it's it's just simpler in the oil side. So as they as you you know if you're if you're going to increase your focus on certain basins, naturally that going to be some divestitures out of these portfolios, right? That they're going to streamline things or or um, who are they going to divest those assets to? I mean, <laughs> where's the buyer in that? If everybody's sort of trying to narrow focus, do we think that that's going to mean that other people are going to focus on what's getting divested from one portfolio, divest from mm -hmm. one portfolio, or or is it just that there's just going to be a really oversupplied M&A market? Well, I think, well, we've had an oversupplied M&A market for <laughs> quite a number of years now. Probably since 2015, you would say that, Fair enough. You know, the, 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 uh, the disconnect in valuation has been really keeping assets from moving. But I think, Brian, what, what you're going to find is that companies will grow and develop in, air, in smaller basin areas and absorb those assets that are made available. And they will become the basin leaders in the maybe if you want to think of them as secondary or tertiary or to ExxonMobil, non-strategic. So what's strategic to one company will be non-strategic to another, and that's how the portfolios will sort of manage themselves uh, or how the assets will move uh, amongst those portfolios. I think what you'll see increasingly is that, again, back to the thesis that the holy grail of, of upstream operations is repeatable investment opportunities in an area that you can grow to reap scale economies. We're going to have more and more concentration, so basins with fewer players, but much more material, which in some cases is going to create efficiency. In some cases, it's going to create uh, potential uh, situations of kind of intersection, maybe even animosity with regulators and governments and owners of the resource space who may not agree with the maybe the pace of development or the type of development that a company is pursuing. So you're going to have, it's going to be a little bit more volatility in that regard. And the, the basins that have, that will continue to have this sort of you know, rich mix of large, medium, and even smaller upstream players are going to be those mature basins like the North Sea, like the Gulf of Mexico, 
Alaska North Slope, Western Canadian Sedimentary Basin, for that matter, uh, where there's room for a lot of players to, to be involved. And the larger companies continue to invest because they've built up that scale. Uh, in the Gulf of Mexico, you know, the ExxonMobil's and, and uh, BP's, uh, Occidental slash Anadarko's, you know, they have the infrastructure. So they'll, and Shell, they'll continue to, to work those basins because that's, you know, your, your discoveries may be smaller, but your probability of success is higher. And when it's becoming more and more a matter of generating returns as opposed to growth, those variables become the drivers. And where, so if we look at the three that, that uh, Exxon focused on, and I know we don't want to focus, you know, the, the entire conversation on Exxon, but you've got kind of three very different focus areas, right? You've got the Permian, which is a, a big basin supporting a lot of activity from, you know, those as large as Chevron and Exxon and those as small as, you know, call it the three of us. You've got Guyana, which is, you know, a bit of a company maker, right? That, that there's not enough there for uh, to, to support somebody in the way that the Permian or the North Sea is. And then you got Brazil that, you know, I, I guess I would put in, in kind of a class by, by itself and, and maybe closer to Gom or North Sea. Um, where do we expect to see the most, uh, I guess, outperformance or the most success for these companies? Is it better to be in the company maker? That better to be in a highly competitive environment where you can learn from those around you or is it better to be in a big basin that's just throwing all cash or do you want the portfolio approach that exxon kind of announced where they've got exposure to all three and they can turn on and off as they need sure well again it'll vary by company size but if you think about the, the six or seven largest players i mean they are portfolio players they have a, a bit of everything um, you take the cash flow from one basin, you invest it in the development of your emerging basin, and you take a small but not immaterial amount of the overall free cash flow being generated, and you continue to probe where the next Guyana might be. Uh, you know, is it the seal basin offshore Brazil mm -hmm. where ExxonMobil's taken a big uh, portfolio position in a play that may end up being somewhat like Guyana? I mean, that's sort of the bet. For a lot of companies, you know, Brazil, because of the overwhelming uh, dominant presence of Petrobras, the national oil company, is not a place that naturally attracts them. They're not big enough to play. They can't get material there. They're, not every company is, is comfortable to be a minority interest player. Uh, Gulf of Mexico is the exact opposite. I mean, you, if you have the expertise, you can... You know, there's there's readily available opportunities through bid rounds and other asset churn to position yourself and grow. Uh, Guyana is, is in that middle ground, and you're very right, Hill. You know, the the uh, we used to talk about this North Sea test, where mm -hmm. uh, you know, what does it take to be a world class basin? You know, and you want enough uh, resource to attract a, a breadth of companies, large, medium, and small. Uh, you want repeatable investment opportunities. And, and you want a you know a, a basin that's able to both absorb the capital, so that assumes a certain amount of above ground infrastructure and institutional capacity in place, but also can manage kind of two two and a half million barrel a day production levels. It, Guyana is in that middle ground. It may not end up being that big, but there has been a flurry of positioning activity by Total and, and Qatar Petroleum and Repsol and uh, companies. You know, coming in after the initial stay broke 
uh, discoveries, even Shell coming back in after sort of leaving in 2014, pursuing other options in their portfolio, coming back into that basin now, trying to position, seeing that it's not just a one block wonder, but there's a large play here that's uh, that can be developed. No one's quite sure how big that play is going to be. But, you know, the so a basin like that will attract players. Will it attract the breadth of players? And is it large enough to become a, you know, a Gulf of Mexico or a North Sea? Uh, that would be a bit of a stretch, just given the, the, the amount of square acreage that you have to deal with uh, that's available to, uh, to work. But And does it generate the cash? Is it big enough to generate the cash to, to feed enough big players? Well, a few. Uh, and again, the, the, it depends how prolific uh, the basin ends up being outside of that, that core Staybroke block. And one of the you know, great advantages for ExxonMobil is how truly enormous that single block is. So this isn't like the Gulf of Mexico with, you know, postage stamp size licenses that you, uh, you know, come up for bid on a regular basis. These are enormous frontier uh, blocks. And, um, you know, they, they had a ton of running room uh, and they continue to have a ton of running room. But even ExxonMobil is positioning itself further along the play into Suriname to see, you know, exactly how big this thing is. And, you know, Total has made a huge bet with Apache that there's room and resource enough for them to become material, as well as ExxonMobil and Hess and Seanook and the other players who are there. So, but it's probably going to end up being in that middle range. What it is going to do is already clear, is generate a, a wall of free cash flow for these companies five years down the road. When they start reaching, you know, the, when the development process really starts moving into large production numbers, three, four, hundred thousand barrels a day, and and then accelerating from there, and that resource then you use to presumably find your next opportunity for growth. Yeah, and maybe use that cash flow to fund your diversification, you know, in other so, forms of energy. Right, I guess absolutely. is probably going to be a a primary aspect of, of that. And I think that's interesting is, um, let's be honest, the onshore has got so much attention this year because well, it's had a lot of attention, I guess, the last several years, but <laughs> particularly this year with the downturn, you know, uh, we, we talk a lot about OPEC and we talk a lot about the U.S. onshore because dynamics, obviously, that were very much at play, or OPEC plus, I should say, that were very much at play through 2020. But um, the potential for some of these big basins and the cash flow generation that they present for for these big portfolios is hugely important. Uh, you, and I'm not bringing this up just because I'm Canadian, but you mentioned the WCSB. <laughs> You're obligated and to bring it up. I'm obligated to bring it up. You mentioned the WCSB. So I'm, I'm going to guess you meant, or, or maybe correct me if I'm wrong, did you mean oil sands? Specifically, uh, how do how do we see oil sands fitting into this? I mean, it's it's clearly got a lot of challenges. A lot of investors, you know, it's become a very challenging basin from an investment profile for for a lot of individuals who've who've definitely backed away from it. Um, sure. Do you have anything to say about how it's sort of fitting into the future? Well, in the Western Canadian sedimentary basin, so that's you know Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba. Uh, it really is becoming a tale of two industries. So you have a an active sector pursuing conventional light and heavy crudes and uh, to a lesser extent unconventionals as in, you know, like the basins further south, primarily comprised of small 
players. I mean, uh, Canada's had this this churn of you know two geologists and a banker take a you know take a section and work that up and turn themselves into a little company and do that for five years and they sell off and they do it again. It's it's been that you know it's pretty unique in the global oil and gas sector what happens in Canada. But then you have the second story, which are the oil sands developments, both the mined and the uh, sort of in situ steam assisted gravity drainage SAGD developments, which are phased, staged, you know, one piece pays for the next. On the oil sands side, you've seen companies consolidating. So there's now three or four large material players. And what they're able to do then is extract the scale economies and extract the cost reductions that have allowed the oil sands to remain viable even at prices down in the 30s and 40s. You know, and we had a big contraction, a big reduction in Canadian uh, oil production in general when the differentials got so wide and our basically our netbacks became negative in, uh, from oil sands operations in Canada. And that was, you know, it was artificial. It was deliberate reduction to try and support those price differentials. Those are coming back and those volumes are coming back. The expectation is you're going to continue to see growth out of the oil sands, not from the mine side. And in fact, we may well have seen our last uh, major mined oil sands development, but from the in situ or below ground in place development where the majority of the oil sands bitumen resource resides. And of course, the, the the model there that works so well is you do produce these these facilities in ten to fifteen thousand barrel a day increments, but you can do ten or fifteen of them on a on a lease, and they just keep paying for each other. Once you have them going, then again you're generating uh, the free cash flow necessary to either take on the next stage or uh, support developments elsewhere in your portfolio. So there's a there's a, a momentum behind the oil sands. That's unlikely to be curbed, certainly in the in the near to medium term, uh, by either issues of finance and financial capability or issues of climate change and energy transition. Well, when we look at, uh, I guess, issues of climate change and issues of energy transition, you know, the the, the oil sector uh, has been, you know, until I guess the month of November, from an investor standpoint, largely out of favor. I mean, the, and a lot of what we've described today. Um, talks of the cash flow and, and returns ability of some of these world-class basins for some of these operators that have exposure to it. But it sounds like there's uh, both a concentration in the basins that you want to be in and, and a concentration of the operators that have exposure to those basins. Mm-hmm. Um, is that really what, you know, from an investor standpoint, is that what we're looking at that, that over the next few years, as returns get tougher, as ESG concerns and investor concerns or climate concerns weigh on the sector, that you really got to understand what you know the, the the details of the portfolio and, and where these you know giant growth engines are um, that, that it becomes a world of have and have nots. Uh, you know, I I think I mean the 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 part of this equation we haven't discussed up to this point is you know if you go from 250 active basins down to maybe 130 now down to 50 or 60 over the next say 10 years. What happens to the other basins? Right. And this is going to be the this is the, the challenge, if you will, facing a large number of national oil companies uh, who are, you know, have been challenged or chartered by their governments to be the stewards of their resource. But that doesn't necessarily make them developers of resource. And the, you know, particularly in the offshore and deep water, but 
also in the onshore. Uh, governments have counted on foreign investment and foreign investors to bring that capital and that expertise to bear to develop their resource. Well, if the companies aren't forthcoming and the capital isn't forthcoming, what happens to the resource that has been discovered but lies undeveloped? And, and that is going to be a harsh reality for a lot of con- countries who may be relying on and, and have made it clear, we, you know, we're relying on these resources to finance our transition. We can't simply have our hydrocarbon sector die. We have nothing to replace it, to make the investments necessary to move us off hydrocarbons onto renewables and through this energy transition process. So there's a, an untold, if you will, or maybe more accurately unrecognized story that's going to play out on the sidelines of this. Uh, it's going to be very difficult for a lot of uh, smaller energy producers and uh, maybe geographic jurisdictions that are out of favor, whether it's a combination of uh, above ground issues that prevent uh, resource development or, or, or argue against it, or whether it's a matter of simply a resource base that's not large enough to attract the attention uh, of those who are increasingly focusing on those 50 or 60 uh, core basins that are going to spin off enough resource uh, to meet our needs as we move through this transition. Um, well, yeah, my last question was actually going to be something that you just responded to. So you've, you've left me sort of lost for words here, Tony, because I was actually going to ask, what is, what's the trick that we're missing? You know, what's that unrecognized trend that's going to, you know, come through this? And and you, you basically laid it out right there is that there's going to be um, a lot of Let's see basins or people kind of left behind in this and, and what happens at that point. So um, I want to thank you for the discussion today because you, you clearly brought up um, what I think are some of the most interesting dynamics for things that aren't really, you know, making their way to the to the spotlight in the newsfeed these days when we talk about oil and gas around the world. So thank you very much for joining us. Um, we really appreciate it. And I'm sure we will have you back. We, we tend we tend to um, revisit our, our guests because um, sometimes we can then see if you're right or wrong on certain <laughs> topics, which is always particularly exciting. We, we try not to concentrate on whether or not Hill and I were right or wrong, of course. We, we tend to try to focus more on whether or not the guests themselves were. But um, thank you very much, and we really appreciate it, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. See you, Brad. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy Solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.